Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did a group of little aliens terrorize a farmhouse in Kentucky in August 1955, resulting in a gunfight with the inhabitants? What made the renowned researcher J. Allen Hynek think this incident was real? Or was the whole thing a hoax by a family that wanted to cash in on the whole flying saucer craze at the time? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 232nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those unusual questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. But before we welcome our guest, let's do our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, in what year did attacks by poltergeists close a school in Uganda twice? Very few people even tried to answer that one, and nobody got it right. But the correct response was 2004, once in May and once in June, at the Basika Primary School with 450 students located in the Butemba district near Kiboga, Uganda. The reason was what was described in the press as a strange outbreak of possession and poltergeist activity. Parents reported that their children were being attacked by demons or mayembe, if my pronunciation is correct. The blame landed on a local guy named Isma Surakuma, who was arrested and immediately confessed that he invited the demons through a witch doctor to help him acquire wealth. Well, yeah, well, parasites anybody, but that's really obscure. I'm not really surprised that no one got it. I mean, well, yeah, you know, we're trying to make things easy here. There's only so many books. A good point. Uh, naturally, as with all self-respecting parasites, they double-crossed dear old Isma, demanding, according to him, the sacrifice of 300 virgin girls and cows to provide them with blood for sustenance. He couldn't afford it, <laughs> probably not legally either, and couldn't control the Mayembe, so they attacked the school. Well, that's how it went in the official record anyway. So this week's question is probably not as hard, I hope. So uh, when and where was the only officially reported Bigfoot sighting in Providence County, Rhode Island? So if you get that right, when a copy of my dad's 1998 book faces at the window and call us locally at 401-766-1240 or nationally at 800-449-1240. So if nobody gets an answer before the end of the show and you still think you have a shot, drop a line to me at ben at behindtheparanormal.com. Now to our guest. Barry Conrad is a paranormal researcher and an Emmy Award-winning television journalist and news photographer who owns Los Angeles-based Barcon Productions. He uh, has dedicated himself to writing and producing paranormal documentaries to, quote, film evidence of an alternate reality which points to the existence of a spiritual realm, unquote. One of his films is the 2005 Monsters of the UFO Incident at Kelly, which is our subject this evening. His website's www.barcon.com and www.worldoftheunknown.com. So, Barry Conrad, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Very good. Okay, so what exactly happened at Kelly-Hopkinsville, Connecticut in 1955? Kentucky. Kentucky, uh, In 1955. Sorry, it's a Monday. It's Kentucky, yeah. Actually, it's a really, it's a fascinating story. I've always been uh, interested in this this story ever since growing up in Ohio because my family were from Kentucky, not Kelly or Hopkinsville. Kelly is actually just a real little... Uh, you know, it's sort of what we would call spit in the dirt. You, know, you go through it and you wouldn't even know you missed it, you know. Uh, 
back there, just a little tiny, like a, maybe a gas station, maybe a church, maybe a few buildings, and, and that's about it. There may be a few more uh, buildings today, I'm not real sure, but uh, but it's a very small little place. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like in 1955? And what is... Uh, you know, astounding about this case is that, that there were so many witnesses. There were uh, 11 adults and I believe three or four children that were in this farmhouse in this Kelly, uh, Kentucky, back in 1950. It was on a Sunday night. And I believe the family, uh, several of them had gone to church earlier in the day. And on Sundays, you have to remember that uh, this lady, there was a lady there, Mrs. Uh, Lankford, Lenny Lankford was her name, and she actually forbade drinking, uh, especially on Sunday. Not to say that these people <laughs> weren't prone to drink, because a lot of people tried to uh, to blow this off as just a you know uh, you know a state of alcohol uh, induced uh, uh, you know hallucination, which was not the case because there were, she was very very strict about people drinking in her home, especially on a Sunday. So, uh, and the fact is, you got so many witnesses. But what, how this all started out? There was uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Elmer Sutton. His nickname was Lucky. And there was another person visiting from Pennsylvania, and his name was Billy Ray Taylor. And they were he was at the house well that night, that fateful night. And he had gone out to the well. There was this well behind the home uh, to get some water. And as he was, uh, you know, uh, pumping the, the pump for the water uh, into a bucket, there was this bright object that appeared streaking across the sky and had multiple colors. It was disc-shaped, and it uh, came down silently, as I recall. I don't believe it made too much noise. There might have been a slight noise, but uh, maybe like a slight squishing noise. But overall, it was fairly silent. And it landed in like a little gully behind this farmhouse. And so he raced in, you know, pell-mell back in the mouth, all excited, you know wanting to tell the other members of the family what he had just witnessed. Well, they were they were uh, so skeptical and, and thought that that, uh, that Billy was making up the story, they didn't even bother to look back there. That's how skeptical they were. I mean, they only had gone out in the back and taken a look. This is right at dark, and I believe they were just getting ready to eat, so they were more interested in eating than looking for flying saucers, curiously enough. And uh, they blew it off, but he was really excited, very adamant, about what he had seen. Mm. And, uh, so right after dark, they heard the dogs uh, barking very, very loud. And they were obviously stirred up by something almost like if there was an intruder on the property. And when they looked out the window, again, this was right at dark, they noticed a small little uh, man-like figure approaching, uh, kind of walking, but yet there was a sort of a flotation, flotatious movement to it at times. And it was silver, it was reported silver gray or metallic in its appearance. And uh, it came towards the house and had its arms in the air, sort of out, you know, outstretched. Each arm was outstretched up into the air. So they, they panicked, went out onto the uh, porch of this house, and when this creature came within, I think, about 15, 20 feet, it stopped, and it was staring at them, and it had somewhat glowing yellowish eyes. And they opened fire with shotguns 
that's a fine welcome to the world, let me tell you. <laughs> well, like, like good old uh, colonial Americans. You know. It's like a yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the amazing thing was is that they hit this creature at point-blank range. Uh, they could see the sparks from the, you know, from the, uh, the rifle hits, you know, uh, coming off of this thing. And the creature sort of did a backward somersault, almost like a circus performer would do. It's very interesting. And obviously, the creature turned out to be invulnerable because the bullets had no effect, and it popped up a little while later, along with several others. There were as many, I believe it's five or six of these things, as I recall, mm-hmm. that showed up at different times during the night. So this very bizarre gun battle uh, kept going on, and it was kind of back and forth. The people would, uh, especially Billy Ray and uh, uh, Lucky, would go in and out of the house, and there was one point where it was kind of quiet, and they thought, well, maybe these uh, these little goblins, as they referred to them as, maybe had left. They were hoping they left. They were, they were pretty terrified at this point. And Billy went out onto the porch first. Lucky was directly behind him. As he stepped out to the edge of the front porch, there was sort of an overhang there. And from above the roof, this incredible uh, claw came down and grabbed Billy by the hair so tightly that it actually lifted him up off his feet, you know, for, uh, you know, a few inches, not very far off, I don't think, but it did lift him up. And uh, he he was released momentarily. And as he was released, he clambered down the steps and Lucky went out to the front with Billy and Billy regained his composure and they started firing at this, uh, this other goblin. It was on the roof staring down at them, and the bullets, which, again, made their made their mark, and this creature flew back into the trees and then disappeared. Uh, but as it was coming down, before it disappeared behind the trees, it looked, again, like it was floating, almost like defying gravity. So more of them showed up. Uh, one was shot off of a rain barrel. Again, you know, knocked off the barrel. It popped up again and, and scurried off. And another one was seen along the side of the house, and it was uh, shot as well at point-blank range. And again, it uh, just sort of rebounded backwards in kind of a slow-motion kind of uh, trajectory, the way it moved, the way it was described, as I recall, and it disappeared. But this, this incredible gun battle was witnessed by the entire family. Uh, many of them were actually looking out the windows as this was going on, Glenny Langford was witnessing this. The children uh, didn't get a great view of it because they were kept either on the bed or under the bed. A couple of kids were under the bed. They were absolutely terrified. And uh, there were several other people. There's a fellow by the name of O.P. Baker who actually I witnessed. I mean, I uh, interviewed as a witness. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you'd talk to eyewitnesses to this. Yeah, you know, that was the thing. It was really hard because I did this story documentary, uh, rather, in uh, 2003. And, it, you know, you're trying to go back 50-some years, and it is really hard trying to locate people that were still alive. But I got the son of Lucky Sutton, a, a really nice guy named Elmer Jr., and I also interviewed uh, Lenny Langford's son, Lonnie, who was in the house. But he was a young boy at the time. And also, I think the most amazing thing was that uh, I was at this home, I'm trying to get, was, I forget the woman's name, but she was uh, 
related to the, the family, because this family fled the farmhouse in the middle of the night, and they did come back temporarily, but then they moved out permanently after this event. Cause it got uh, yeah. to PR, you know, much attention. And I just can't remember the lady's name off, off the, the top of my head, but I remember I interviewed this lady who had lived in the house right after the event, and there were still bullet holes in the glass and so forth. And her brother uh, talked to me, and uh, I know his first name was Wendell. He told me that there was a fellow that was still alive. In the community, his name was O.P. Baker. And when I checked the, the witness list, you know, from the Isabel Davis report, she was the lady who had originally investigated it, uh, one of the first people that did an in-depth interview about it and wrote a report on it. Uh, he was on that witness list. And we tried to call him on the phone. And he had a very hard of hearing. He was about 80 years old at the time. And so I thought, well, you know, we're only here in Kentucky one more day. So we just took a chance, and we had the address. We went up to to this apartment complex, and there was an old man out in front hobbling around uh, on uh, on crutches, as I recall. He didn't, he, he couldn't walk very well, or he had a walker or a cane, rather, not crutches, but a cane. And I said to uh, my then girlfriend at the time, uh, Lisa, who since passed away, unfortunately. I said to Lisa, I said, that's got to be O.P. Baker. So we went up and talked to him, and sure enough, it was him. Uh, he didn't especially want to talk about it, but we were very fortunate in getting an interview. We did a very quick interview with him. He, he gave us a 15, 20-minute interview. And it was the only interview ever done with him, and he told us that he hadn't been a religious religious person until that night. He had witnessed everything uh, that was seen according to, pretty much along the same lines as what the other people reported. And that he's been going to church ever since. <laughs> been going to church ever since. He was actually wearing a silver crucifix uh-huh. around his neck. He was still he was wearing these bib overalls. Yeah, typical, uh, you know, what a typical farmer would have looked like back in those days, especially. Yeah, I've seen uh, people become very religious very quickly. Uh, some of these things going. On. So okay. Yeah. So uh, what happened? Um, uh, how, how long did this entire incident last? I mean, before they well, left to was, go to the police. It went on several hours. It, uh, I think it went on like two or three hours. There were there was like a say there were sort of, um, you know, there were there were moments when there was a lot of fierce gunfire, and I know there was a point where the creatures actually came right up to the windows, and with these glowing eyes staring in at them, uh, Billy Ray was firing right through the right through the glass, and the creatures would would flip backwards and then show up a little later on and come back again mm-hmm. and they fire again and and then there were periods like I think where there was absolutely no activity but reportedly the, the gun battle went on for several hours at least two or three hours now obviously and, the uh these whatever these things were weren't firing back were they no they weren't firing back and you know and actually what's interesting about it is that the creatures really showed no hostility whatsoever as I recall mm-hmm. yeah the hands outstretched uh, kind of uh indicates, I don't know, perhaps what we would think of as a, as a wave or a sign of peace or something of that kind. Yeah, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we're, we're here in peace, don't don't fire on us, you know. <laughs> yeah, just to speculate a bit. So I'm sorry, to continue with the uh, with your narrative. Yeah, well, they were, they were, they were, they were, they were engaged in this uh, gun battle for several hours, uh, reportedly. And then, like I said, there were periods of time when it would, would, would be silent, and, you know, it was an eerie stillness in the wooded area surrounding the home. It's a very rural area. I, I went to that location, then, and the house is no longer there, unfortunately. But in my documentary, I found that. Yeah, we, we've been through that area ourselves. Yeah, have you seen that? If you, if you saw my documentary, there's a photograph of the actual house. Mm-hmm. 
at least the back side of it, the only one that I found, the lady who had moved in uh, had, had that photograph in her album. So I was able to get a few uh, authentic photographs. But the, um, the, the phenomena of, the, of these creatures that, that invaded this little house, and I, as I said before, they never showed any kind of hostility. Uh, but the men, acting out of fear, uh, fired on these creatures. Uh, very unwarranted doing that, but that's the way, the way that fear can strike uh, a lot of things in people. And, and uh, people will fire without even thinking. Sometimes. Yeah. So when did they head for the police? Well, after several hours, it was like in the wee hours of the morning. It was like around 3, I believe, 3.30 in the morning. They got into two vehicles, and they uh, they raced into a, a nearby town about eight miles uh, south there, a little town called Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which coincidentally is the, is the home of Edgar Casey. I thought I might throw that in. Oh, you're right. I thought that sounded familiar, yeah. In fact, in fact if you go there today, you can still see signed. I, I believe one of the family members was or Frank Casey or someone, so there's a... Uh, They'll see a, a painted, the bricks are still painted on one of the buildings. Mm-hmm. I guess they, they had a family business there at one time. So they went into uh, Police Chief Greenwell's uh, office there at the Hopkinsville Police Department. Absolutely panicked. Panicked. Beyond belief, man. They told this incredible story about what had happened to them. And, of course, you know, the the, the, peop- the people there, the officers, uh, looked at it a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But I think as much as... Uh, skepticism they must have shown they were still uh, impressed by the apparent state of fright these people were in okay well Ben's got a question okay yes. so was it the witnesses in the farmhouse who decided that these were aliens the witnesses in the farmhouse uh, you know they as I recall never actually said they were aliens they believed you know being from a very religious community that they were some kind of de- demonic force mm-hmm uh, you know, which just makes sense. You know, they, they attribute it to some kind of... Uh, so they might have been right, yeah. Yeah, they could, which could have been. <laughs> who yeah, knows, who right? knows, yeah. <laughs> uh, demonic force or, or a demon. And uh, But the uh, the thing that really stands out is that they had these very large uh, large ears, very pointed ears that went straight up. They had very long arms and the, the, they had claws that looked like talons. Uh, very, very sharp claws. And... Uh, very, very thin, and I believe they're just like a slit for a mouth, you know, and, uh, a very small uh, nose or something. But it was they were very, very small features. But I wanted to let me back up and regress just a bit. There is a very interesting uh, thing that happened just one week prior to this event near Evansville, Indiana. There's a little town called Dogtown, and there was a lady named Mrs. Darwin Johnson, and she was with one of her friends, and they were swimming in the Ohio River there. And they saw a silvery-shaped object land in the woods near the river. And right after that, um, these claw-like hands, like the ones that reported in, uh, in Kelly uh, a week later, reportedly grabbed Mrs. Johnson under the water and tried to pull her down and drown her. Uh-huh. So there was an act of hostility there. Now, the question is whether or not these are the same creatures, because she never saw the creatures themselves. She felt like, uh, you know, a claw on her leg pulling her underwater. But that was reported in the press at that time. I had the actual newspaper article. I believe that was in the documentary as well. And so that was an interesting uh, thing that happened. That's a report back, to River Monsters. They got like a River Monster story, yeah. Yeah, yeah I know it was a little place called Dogtown. 
uh, near Evansville, is all I know where it happened. But they were all, she described as very clawed hands on the end of a very strong, very thin, very long, uh, discolored arms, you know, she got kind of a glimpse of the water. And, they, and by, by the way, the, the, uh, when this creature, whatever it was, if it was one or two, I assume it was one, it caused deep cuts, and she was pulled into the water twice. Interesting. And other members of the swimming outing actually rescued her, and these unearthly hands disappeared. And uh, so it's a very, very interesting predecessor to the case that would happen a week later in, uh, in Kelly. Yeah, and not, not to digress, but I find it very interesting that she could see, I mean, the Ohio River tends to be a bit muddy, as I recall, and I, I'm not too sure how she might have seen such detail, although you could certainly feel that. But, but be that as it may. Uh, yeah, unless it was very close to the service, you know. Exactly. Well, you're, you're good. You, you do what we do. We put things in context of uh, you know, other events in the area and, and uh, contemporary sightings and things of the same kind. So go ahead, Ben. There's another question. Okay, so what actual evidence did the police find when they investigated the case? Well, when the police came there... Um, there wasn't a lot of evidence, to be honest with you. There was no markings on the ground, that was no footprints or anything. But then there hadn't been a rainfall uh, for a while. I believe the ground was pretty hard, pretty dry. But the, the main piece of evidence uh, that I think is interesting, they did find bullet holes everywhere, uh, especially the windows being shattered. And when I did the documentary, I was very fortunate, as I said, when I, I found this woman who had actual photographs taken, uh, from her, well, actually, her family had moved into this house afterward. They were related to the Sutton family. And she had a photograph of her mother posing by the main front window in the front of the house, and you could still see these, these bullet holes. And I remember that the police officers, uh, in their initial report thought, well, maybe since these were kind of tobacco farmers, that they had taken a tobacco stick. You know, these were the things that the, the tobacco plants grew on and had, you know, poked holes through the windows and things of that nature. But uh, I took the photograph to a gentleman at a gun shop here uh, in uh, Burbank, California, and he analyzed the picture. He said, no, those are real gunshots because of, of the spray pattern and so forth. And they were shot at close range, so he believed those were real bullet holes. He knew uh, trajectories and things like that and what mm-hmm. real bullet holes look like. He was really experienced with that. So there was a lot of bullet holes. Um, that was probably the best uh, best piece of evidence. There was a rumor, however, and I say a rumor. I, I interviewed uh, one of the gentlemen, who was, one of the officers who went out there, who was a, extremely skeptical. Uh, this one officer who was still alive at the time talked to me. I, I believe he may still be alive, but he had talked to me about about it, and he said that one of the other officers on his way out to the farmhouse that night had seen a strange uh, meteoric shower of lights. Ascending into the sky. Ascending. Ascending, going up into the sky. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. And I went to the, when I went to the house in uh, 1976, I made a visit there. And there was a, uh, a trailer on the property of uh, relatives uh, who didn't know, uh, they knew the story, but they didn't, didn't know a lot uh, a lot about it, other than what their family, nothing different than what their family had told from, uh, from years down the road. But there was a, an older couple that lived in, a, in almost like a log cabin. They lived maybe about a quarter mile behind the property. And they had heard the gunshots that night, and they reported that they had seen strange lights they had seen in the field that night. 
hmm. which would have been close to proximity of where that gully was, where this saucer had landed or this UFO had landed. So I okay. thought that was interesting. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM in New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley and ONWorldwide.com. We'll be right back with our guest, Barry Conrad, to continue our interesting discussion of the Hopkinsville incident. Stay with us. Saludos amigos. Well, you asked for me and now you've got me. Now you can hear me, Vic Ramos, and my friends on my bilingual show Saturday mornings from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. In addition to my Friday night show. Can you believe it? It's like Saturday morning cartoons all over again. Wake up and tune in. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. Okay, and we're back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our, our very interesting guest this evening, Barry Conrad, filmmaker and expert on the Hopkinsville-Kelly, Kentucky incident of 1955, which we have been discussing in detail. Now, let me bring up a few points here, Barry. A skeptic could bring up a number of points. Uh, one is that the flying saucer craze was at its height in 1955, and these people had just wanted to cash in, especially since... Um, uh, two of them uh, seem to have been, I believe, at least the carnival workers. I mean, what say yeah. you about that accusation that skeptics have made? Yeah, I heard that, and it, it is true that uh, Billy Ray and Lucky Sutton had worked at a carnival for a while, and so I believe that's how they met. I'm not sure what they did at the carnival, but they had worked at a carnival, so that is one of the uh, theories uh, from the skeptic standpoint that perhaps that you know they were, uh, you know, they were carnies. And of course, you know, carnies have kind of a bad reputation of bilking the public out of money by, uh, you know, like the freak show. It goes back to the freak show. They were always the, not always, but there was a lot of chicanery, I should say, that mm, went on, yeah. you know, where people were charging money and you know, like the, the, the glowing mermaid or the, the Bigfoot monster, things like that, that were, were dummies or something like that, stuffed animals or whatever it made to look that way. Um, but I, I, I can understand... Because, you know, cause I, I, I kind of, that raised an eyebrow with me, too, when I heard that. But the thing that I, that I kept kind of going back to, you know, which is interesting, I, I thought, but, you know, but it would have taken a lot of, uh, a, a lot of effort to create creatures that look as real as these things apparently looked, looked uh, at that, that night and to have created a, a hoax like this and have fooled so many people. And the other thing that... I thought about was the fact that uh, Officer uh, Russell Greenwell, the police chief, who really, you know, he racked his brain on the interviews, the witnesses over and over again, especially Mrs. Langford, because he says, uh, of all the witnesses that really rang true, it was Mrs. Langford, because she was sort of the pillar of the community. She was known to be a very uh, hardworking, honest person, and that word honest was kept coming back, that she was on it, that she had seen these creatures right off the window when these things were happening. And the the apparent fright in the, and, you know, and, and then you go back to, you know, why would they, what on earth would have motivated someone to, to create this, such elaborate hoax, uh, disrupting that evening and going all night and going into the, uh, to the uh, police station in the middle of the night reporting such a phenomenally bizarre story. Yeah, really well. Uh, it just didn't ring true with me because my background was kind of journalism years ago. I, yeah, as is right. mine. Yeah, you know, and you know, you think about it. 
what would that take to really do that? I mean, that would take an immense amount of effort. And they did see these creatures being shot at close range and doing very unearthly things, the slow motion floating downwards from trees. That One was shot out of a tree during this, this night of horrors, and it was floating down. And it left a, by the way, it left a glowing imprint on the ground for a short period of time before fading away. And the children, uh, now I don't know whether this was true or not, but I heard that several of the children were so frightened that several of them had been hospitalized for shock. So they were, they were such a state of shock from this. Uh, it, it's just, it, it, if it was a hoax, it was one of the greatest hoaxes of all time. And, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, the, where were the uh, nearest neighbors? Nearest neighbors were pretty far away. There was one house, like I mentioned, of uh, that one family, I'd say maybe about a quarter mile from the original Sutton farmhouse that I found in 1976. And beyond that, there were some scattered farmhouses uh, you know, in the outlying area. There was a tobacco farm not very far away, I'd say within maybe a half a mile at the most uh, from there, as I recall seeing. Uh, but I don't know of anyone else reporting the, the uh Yeah, the gunfire. Gun you think that you think somebody would have reported uh, that much gunfire. Yeah, you think so. The only the only people that reported it, I mean, I, they didn't report it, but the only people that I know that they told me that they heard it was this. Yeah, as you say, yeah. Older man and older woman, and they seemed to be uh, uh, very honest people, and they said they saw these glowing lights in that field that night. I thought that was interesting. Okay. The other, right. thing, the other thing, too, I might mention, during that same weekend when the Kelly thing was going on, there were uh, several other sightings in the tri-state area, in Indiana and the Ohio River Valley area of other UFO sightings in that, almost at that same time. So I find that to be interesting. As do we, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Ben's got another question here. Okay, so, Perry, in 1955, UFO investigation was not what it is today. So, did anyone question the witnesses about burns or later evidence of diseases like cancer from radiation or et cetera? Yeah, follow-up. We're big believers of follow-up. Oh, follow-up, yeah. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if there was a lot of follow-up uh, on that or not. I know there was a lot of curious people there. There was, uh, I've heard, well, I've heard conflicting things. I've heard that the Air Force checked it out, then I've heard that they didn't check it out. And uh, so I'm not really sure if the Air Force really did check it out, but I, according to some of the witnesses, uh, the one man that I interviewed, O.P. Baker, he had said something about the fact that it, it had been roped off for a couple of days, and there had been uh, uh, people out there from a nearby uh, uh, National Guard base or something of that nature. Mm. But uh, I think that at that time they may have just, just because it was maybe uh, from where it was located, it was in in the heart of Kentucky, in a, uh, you know, a remote area where people are known to uh, have moonshine still, things of that nature, uh, I think it was just sort of blown off. And it's unfortunate because um, you have to really look at everything. Like you said, you have to really look at every little aspect of the case. Now, as far as there being any radiation burnt or anything of that nature, I didn't hear of anything like that. Okay. Uh, I don't recall anything, anyone ever saying anyone was had any uh, residual Okay. Well, onto the scene now comes Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Now, he was hired by the Air Force, and he's 
the days, the early days of the UFO craze, to debunk the whole flying saucer thing. But he ended up a believer. Now, how did he get involved in this case, Barry? Well, I, I, I understand that he looked into the case, but I'm not sure if he actually was there at the location. I, I know that one of his associates, I believe, or at least uh, was this lady I mentioned, Isabel Davis. And I think Isabel Davis might have been uh, either sent by him or he suggested that she go there or something of that nature. Uh, but I didn't hear of any, uh, at least I haven't seen any testimony stating that he had actually gone there. But I think he probably probably looked at the uh, at the evidence or the, the stories that uh, Isabel had collected. And uh, so I'm not sure. I'm sure he was a little bit skeptical, too, uh, about it. I don't know what his official statement was on that. But, uh, yeah, well, neither do I. But I, I understand that he thought that something had gone on that was not necessarily a hoax. Whether yeah. interpreted in, other, in the wrong way, we, he didn't know. Didn't Very well could be. It. But, you know, you brought out a good point. Here was the man uh, uh, who, uh, you know, I, I, he, had, I, he had some high credentials. He was at Northwest University's uh, in Chicago. He was part of their astronomy department at one time. And he sort of became the Air Force's uh, debunking man who went out to defuse uh, a lot of the cases. And I think the most, you know, obviously, as you know, the most uh, famous of those cases was the... Uh, Michigan sightings in 1965, I believe it was, where he went out to uh, the Ann Arbor area, and there were a multitude of sightings at the time, and there was a, a, a flying saucer that landed in a swamp owned by a farmer named Frank Dexter, and there was such a, a hullabaloo. I mean, you know, uh, students from uh, from Ann Arbor, uh, University of Michigan there, were witnessing objects right out their dorm room. These objects were coming in very close range. Cops were photographing objects at long range. Um, but he uh, was told by the Air Force to debunk uh, or defuse the situation, and he came up with the swamp gas theory, or the swamp gas answer to that. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, uh, that's what stuck. That's what the press uh, reported it as, and it diffused the whole situation, and then everybody's, oh, it's just swamp gas. Well, it's swamp gas, and they blew it off. But as you know, as you mentioned, made a good point, before he died, he came forward and he... Uh, and after many other investigations, he, he, he gradually came to the realization that there was a, a very strong evidence for the objective reality of UFOs. Yeah, he told me that himself. I actually managed to meet him before he died. Oh, uh, great. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, ben, ben and I live, we always try to give some background here in the show. Our approach is very unusual. I've been involved in paranormal research for 40, almost 41 years. Huh? And... Um, Ben and I live and work on what we refer to as multiverse principles, you know, based on the ideas of some of the ideas of quantum mechanics. Everything is possible somewhere or somewhere, especially when parallel world boundaries intersect. I mean, if you believe, you believe this sort of thing. Yes. And that's why I take the skepticemics, as I call them, with a pillar of salt. Yes. Even though I've asked some skeptical questions. I mean, it's eternally amusing to me that some of these geniuses who weren't there, by the way, that drives me nuts, they'll come up with explanations that are far more ridiculous than the actual claims of the witnesses. That's actually happened to me. I understand that, that one skeptic on this said that there was a silver-painted monkey who escaped from a local military base. That yeah. ex- I mean, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, I, there was one uh, skeptic going around saying that there were, they, these were owls. Yeah, some whiz kid. I mean, these are rural people. I mean, the most one of the most common species here in the East is the great horned owl. We have yes. them around here ourselves. And for for somebody to suggest that these people are not going to recognize tell the difference between an owl and an alien, I mean, come on. 
Yeah, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, they're so quick. They're not there, but they're they're backseat drivers all these years later saying whatever they want to say about it. And they come up with the most ridiculous uh, <laughs> explanations. And that same thing happened with the Flatwoods Monster case. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, West Virginia, which I also investigated. Mm-hmm. I have a show coming out on that I have not released yet. Do you know uh, Frank Fashina? I met him briefly in in, uh, in Flatwoods, and he wrote a... Uh, a really interesting book on that. Yeah, he's a good friend of ours, frequent guest. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he wrote an interesting book. We were at the, uh, I met him at the, uh, I believe it was the 50th anniversary of the Flatwoods incident. Mm. So that would have been in 2002 because that incident happened on September 12th, 1952. And so we were there on September 12th, uh, 2002, exactly 50 years to the very night that happened. We went up that hill. Uh, that pathway to that hill where this UFO landed. And on that subject, by the way, I have the only interview with one of the oldest witnesses to the Flatwoods Monster sighting. Wow. Uh, and uh, his name is Neil Nunley. He goes by the name of Chuck Nunley. He lives in uh, Ohio, at Kent, uh, Ohio. And it's the only interview he's, he's ever done or ever will do. At least that's what he told me. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, But he, he confirmed cool. that, yeah. uh, that there was... Uh, uh, something there. He did not get the best look at it, as did some of the other witnesses of the actual creature, but he saw the UFO in plain sight. And it was a large object that was changing colors, big as a house. And, uh, and uh, what he saw was a very, very tall shadow that came towards him, floating from underneath an oak tree. And Gene got first sight of it because it was dark, and he shined his light up there. And the people that were close to Gene got a very good sh- uh, look at it. Very tall. A uh, ten-foot-tall entity with a perfectly round, blood-red face, glowing eyes, and was wearing a very odd-shaped, uh, kind of an inverted ace of spades helmet apparatus around its uh, upper body or over its head, rather. And uh, but Neil got caught up, as he told me, he got caught up in the frenzy of panic because they had seen this thing and they started running. As he looked back, he but he, he didn't get a clear, clear shot at the flashlight had gone away from it, but he did see this very large shadow he could still make out in, the, in, the, in, that, uh, in that area, and it, was, it really was amazing. Yeah, it was quite, and we've done uh, uh, several shows on that, actually. Well, now, you know, it's not that I don't think people should be skeptical. I mean, you have to be skeptical. You have to be uh, reasonable and, to, uh, and look at all the evidence, but realize that there are things that we can't explain and for which the normal scientific proof uh, does not apply, in my opinion. But, but I think, you know, Barry, maybe you'll agree with me. There's, there's another factor here that uh, is something I can't stand, even though Ben and I had nine ancestors on the Mayflower, and I call it the damn Yankee factor. Right? And it goes like this. I'm from Massachusetts, and I have a college degree. You, on the other hand, are a farmer from Kentucky who finished barely finished high school. That means I'm a genius and you're an idiot. And any any story that comes out of the South, particularly, or the Midwest, very often is met with the damn Yankee factor from people around where, where we are. And yeah. it drives me nuts. You know, I know what you saw or didn't see, even though I wasn't even there. And I hate that because there's nothing worse than ignorance coupled with arrogance. I mean, here in New yeah. England, some of the most ignorant people and, and narrow people I know have doctoral degrees. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. Oh, exactly. I mean, let's hear it from modern education. We produce the best educated nitwits in the world. That's very cynical, anyway. But uh, Barry, uh, are you satisfied yourself that the Kelly Popkinsville uh, incident is uh, is true, or, or or is basically true? 
I I believe that the basic elements are there. I, I believe something of extremely high strength has happened there that night, just because of the number of witnesses. And going back again to uh, speaking with with Lonnie Langford, the son of Glenny, who was there, who who seemed to still be frightened to this day about it, and the fact that Officer Greenwell uh, was so impressed by the seeming veracity of Lenny Langford's testimony, her being the pillar of community. I talked to one of the town historians there who also had known Glenny. He was still alive at that time. Um, and he said that if Glenny said she saw it, it was there. So Yeah, okay. That's, uh, how, that's how truthful a person she mm-hmm. was. Well, Ben's got a uh, question that kind of takes us uh, into another realm here. Okay, yeah. so there is an opinion among investigators that UFO phenomena has changed over the last decade or so. Instead of metallic craft landing in fields, reports now seem to involve small orbs and silent triangular craft. Has something changed, or yeah, what's going on with this? That's an interesting. That's an interesting uh, aspect. Yeah, um, there there was a lot more uh, flying disc type uh, phenomena reported. It was always kind of the same thing—a flying disc, uh, rather. Back then, it seems like that's all you heard about. And today there is a lot more orb activity. In fact, I just um, completed doing a pilot for a show called Case Files UFO, and there was a, a gentleman by uh, the name of Daniel Bell who actually teaches photography and he teaches uh, construction at a local uh, high school here. And he was on an Alaskan Airlines flight, and he actually got these incredibly clear photographs of uh, UFOs out off the wing of the plane that look like big glowing uh, orbs, as you mentioned, orbs of light. And there's another interesting tie-in. You were talking about this being a multiverse that we live in. I, I, I tend to believe that because of all the ghost research and stuff that I've done. Oh, exactly. Yeah, well, that's, that is we're essentially ghost researchers, or I don't even yeah. call it that anymore. I, I hate the term ghosting. We've become cosmic sojourners. Yeah, because I don't know. But, you know, I did the San Pedro haunting years ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yep, yep. Go ahead and talk about that if you like. And that's where it was a phenomenal case, and we picked up a lot of orbs uh, on my camera. I picked these up on video that I didn't see with the naked eye. And sometimes they were very small little, uh, uh, well, the ones I picked up on video, they were very minuscule-looking little comets or tracer bullets of light that had a distinct glow. Usually usually they were white. Sometimes they were orangish-green. And they were moving at very fast trajectories, a very smooth trajectory. Right? They're moving very fast speeds, but the trajectories are very smooth. Unlike most insects are that are, which are a little bit more uh, erratic in their flight paths. That's true. Yeah. And they were self-luminescent uh, because uh, I picked up uh, a lot of these in, in situations where there was even shadows, like shaded areas, uh, where there's no direct sunlight, and you could see these things glowing. Uh, looking like, uh, you know, uh, fireflies with jetpacks on their backs or something. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And yeah. that was really phenomenal because these these lights can also be a lot larger because the woman living in the house picked up these more, uh, uh, what you call they were they were circular, but they were larger basketball-shaped objects, glowing spheres, and they would appear in a, as a trio of light hovering over the carpet in the baby's bedroom. And that was the case where... I had a, uh, a fellow working for me who was hanged in the attic of the house 
uh, on uh, September uh, 4th, 1989, not killed. Uh, but fortunately, he survived. Hunter Tillman took him down. But I was there the night he was hanged, and there were lights picked up that night. So you bring up a, an interesting point about the orbs. The question is, when they're seen in the sky, are these crafts or are these spiritual phenomena? That's the question, yeah. Yeah. I think that maybe, more often than not, they could be spiritual phenomena as opposed to craft. But then other times, uh, I think they're craft. I just uh, had the pleasure of uh, working with, uh, meeting and working, interviewing, rather, uh, Travis Walton. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, we're hoping to have him on soon. Yeah, two of the witnesses, Kenny Peterson and Mike Rogers, who were who were there at uh, in the Thick Graves Forest in 1975 on November 5th when uh, when uh, Travis was taken aboard a flying saucer. Now that was definitely a craft. Uh, it was a disc shaped. Going back again, the stuff we saw that was reported rather in the 50s, more of the traditional flying saucer with the cupola on top and metallic look to it. Uh, hovering 20 feet off the ground as they came around uh, a bend in the dirt road. They were woodcutters up there, clearing some of the uh, you know the dry brush up there. And uh, what I uh, what I found to be really fascinating about that case too is the fact that all of the witnesses' stories pretty much jive or, yeah. or the same as what I, I and I was very impressed by Travis himself because he's a very uh, forthright individual and he he actually started tearing up a bit when we brought back the experience to him. Hmm. And, uh, uh, I'm afraid we're kind of running out of time here, Brad, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your websites. And uh, can people get Monsters of the UFO? Is that That's available on DVD, isn't it? Where can people get your movies? Yes, they can go to uh, worldoftheunknown.com. That's worldoftheunknown.com, or it's available on amazon.com. And okay. I have some other uh, shows here I've done on uh, San Pedro Haunting, uh, Unknown Encounter, where the man was hanged by the ghost. And they also get my book on that case. Uh, I wrote the book by the same title, An Unknown Encounter, mm-hmm. a true account of the San Pedro Haunting, but the Monster of the UFO title is definitely there. Great. And what are you working on now? Right now, I have two projects. I've got this uh, Case Files UFO, which is uh, real people telling their stories with real evidence that they've captured their own stuff. Uh, and I'm working on uh, a second project called Case Files Unknown, very similar title. But I wanted to do Case Files Unknown and not limit it just to ghosts and haunted houses, although we'll do a lot of that. But because, as you know, the world of paranormal, it's a very, very large, uh, you know, sphere. And uh, it's the whole a lot world. of things that go into that banner. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Barry, thank you. It's been a very interesting show. We're definitely going to have you back because we, we brought up some stuff we didn't have time to talk about. But thank you for being with us. And... Um, We'll talk to you soon. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I hope to see you guys soon. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, everyone. We're going to we have time maybe for one email here, and we're going to continue one that we received, a multifaceted one we received from Lisa in Ohio, uh, Brunswick, Ohio, and she asked several questions, one of which we dealt with last night. And here's uh, the next one that she's um, she's asking us. Go ahead, Ben. Okay, so you have you've said several times that you and Ben have met "Quote unquote," other beings that have helped you and Ben. How are they? Who are they? Who do they choose to contact? What information have they given us? The fact that you admit it, this is huge. Are you going to have a show dedicated to these beings? And I'd like to talk to one myself, quite honestly. Well, let me put this in a little bit of 
context here. Okay, go for it. We're not psychics and mediums, okay? We think that the whole idea of a spirit world where beings know everything and contact you and all this stuff is, is just a little bit silly. We think that it's it's nowhere near good enough to explain the way the universe really has been created. Right? I like to use the example of Fight Club, if anyone has ever seen that movie, because it's a very good movie. When the narrator is at some self-help thing and the new age lady who's like, you have to meet your spirit animal. His spirit animal's a penguin. And the penguin just just says slide, and then just slides away, and that's pretty much that. That's how I look at modern um, medium work. Just yeah. Kind of, really now, in fairness to those, I mean, there are a number who are more aware of multiverse principles now and what they what might really be doing. And of course, the danger is that you're listening to what's being said and you're believing it. It might not be true, and it might be not be what it appears to be. And that's one one thing we're very careful. It's of. like an insurance salesman coming to your door, like. Yeah. You, you wouldn't want to just let them right into the house because... Especially if they had horns on their head. Exactly. Well, anyway. Anyway, uh, so what essentially we're talking about is that the multiverse is a an interactive, open system of many, many, many different worlds, perhaps an infinite number. And this is what quantum mechanics and the math seems to indicate, although it is interpreted in many ways. Our, the interpretation we have comes from, first of all, my time in the paranormal trenches over the last 40 years, seeing that this is really the only explanation to it that fully handles everything that I've seen and experienced very often in the presence of witnesses and creatures I've encountered. And I'm not talking about Bigfoot or, or little alien guys attacking farmhouses in Kentucky either. And I, so what, what uh, Lisa is referring to in this context are a number of beings Ben and I have encountered who are not supernatural, they're, they're just people, the people of their own worlds, if you will, going about their day, but the laws of physics in their world, and this is what quantum physics speculates, that the laws of physics from world to world can be very, very different. Uh, they're, they're more aware of other worlds, they're more aware of us, and this, I think, is, is the definition of spiritual growth for us, is becoming aware of where we already are living simultaneous lives in many of these different worlds. Some of these creatures, however, are not human in our sense of the, of the word. I'm thinking, for example, of the most prominent group of beings we have encountered, and that is what Ben refers to as the clerics. I first had them in a few photographs, and the first thing I do when I encounter anything in the paranormal is to try and test it. Is this real? Is this what it appears to be? Is there love here? Because where there is evil and negativity, you're not going to find love. And you do get to the point where, I, it's, I suppose, like practicing the piano for 40 years, you can't help but hopefully get a little better. Uh, when you're looking for, when you know what to look for, if I say so myself, uh, you do develop confidence that what you're dealing with is real. And this particular race of beings who has, as I say, uh, we do encounter very frequently now that we're working together uh, at certain places, is very benign, very gentle. I don't know much about their culture although they seem to be just as physical as we are on another side of uh, another world boundary, if you want to call it that. And we find that they are very um, helpful when it comes to working against what we refer to as parasites. We find these parasites, what, what folklore calls demons, uh, which feed upon, this sounds kind of crazy, but this is what we run into all the time, they feed upon the negativity that we produce. I can't put a scientific finger on that, but that seems to be what happens. 
And we talk a lot about families on this show, coming together, being strong, holding hands, and, and, and being uh, in solidarity. That seems to repel these parasites. And what, what we're getting at in some of these shows, are that these parasites are real enemies of the human race. You can see where the idea of the devil and demons and all these things working against us came about, because that's, in a way, what really seems to be kind of happening, although they're only doing it because they need to eat. They're like cosmic mosquitoes. So what we find is that getting together with other denizens of the multiverse who might not inhabit our particular consciousness stream works. They are interested in helping us against these things because they're their enemies too. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the particular beings we refer to, Lisa, uh, are very often these clerics. There is, we're running out of time here, but one of the, one of the other groups I've run into I'd like to know more about, and I have personally only encountered one, and I often, uh, I know people write in and say they're fascinated by this story, but this, this occurred in an attic in New York State in the 1990s when I was visiting there working on a, on a case. And the people had said that they heard these very heavy footsteps in the attic. It was not, they weren't, they didn't feel threatened. They didn't feel as though it was some sort of enemy, but they just felt it was really strange. So I went up there and I, and to make a long story short, I encountered a very fascinating and all I can think of is bear-like guy, not human, but very benign and, and the, the air of nobility about this this creature was just overwhelming. I felt to be honored in his presence. He was on some sort of... And he spoke... What came across to me was a very, very strange and old form of Latin. And I can get by in Latin, but I'm not that good that I, you know... I had to really work out some of the case endings and stuff in order to communicate with this guy. And he was on a quest for a place called Renthusia. And Ben has, in his meditations... You don't want to talk about it. Okay. So... This is what we're talking about, Lisa. I don't really feel that we have enough information to do a whole show on it. This is in process, though, and so stay tuned, as we say. Uh, how many minutes we got there, Mr. Peters? Okay, very good. Just about wraps us up then. So, again, any thoughts on this or any experiences you may have had uh, with, with, pe- with people from uh, our neighbors there in the uh, large apartment house, we might call the multiverse, let us know. And, again, be very careful treading that path as well. A lot of things out there to deceive you. Anyway, here we go. So many thanks to our sainted producers, Steve Bianchi, and we'll see you next Monday, April 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, right here on WON 1240 AM and onworldwide.com. Ben and I will welcome author Gary Jansen on the subject of Holy Ghosts, and hopefully I will have recovered from oral surgery. You almost said Saint Bianchi. Anyway, uh, in the meantime, tune into our Sunday evening CBS radio edition in Boston, Detroit, Seattle, and Pittsburgh, and Owen and online at www.newskyradio.com. More coffee, uh, Ben. More coffee. Uh, All right. Now, on April seventeenth, Ben and I will welcome uh, on our CBS show the uh, New York Times best-selling author Steve Alton for a discussion of 2012. The end of days. Now, Steve has had a few. We've scheduled him twice before, but there were terrible things happened. Couldn't make it the first time because somebody gave us the wrong phone number, and the second time his father passed away uh, the very night of our interview. So hopefully we'll be able to get Steve on. Yeah, hopefully we'll have better luck this time. Absolutely. Okay, and always remember, you can get free podcasts of all our shows along with show schedules and guest information at www.behindtheparanormal.com. In the meantime, we'll leave you with a thought from American lawyer and scholar Felix S. Cohen. Quote, generally the theories we believe call... Fe- I'm, so, I'm starting again. 
Generally, the theories we believe we call facts, and the facts we disbelieve we call theories. Unquote. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.